Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with London-based jazz saxophonist Alex Hitchcock. We get into his 2023 CD called Dream Band, Live in London, that is the culmination of a three-night residency at London's legendary Vortex Club. He stands as a distinctive improviser and a leading voice on his instrument in the UK. We cover this latest project, Surviving COVID, the future, and so much more about his illustrious career. Enjoy this interview. What's up, man? Mm, I'm good. It's the middle of the afternoon and I'm drinking coffee because I want to be interesting for the podcast. <laughs> it's all good, man. I have to do the same thing. I have to have a couple after the uh, noon hour, so I, I know the feeling. Okay, for sure. cool. Well, cool, Glad man. we're on the same page. Absolutely, yeah. The caffeine train is is roaring. Nice to meet you and, and thanks for taking a minute out, man. What a great project to, to delve into and talk about now that we've been away from live music for so long. Oh man, um, nice to meet you too, Joe. Thanks very much for having me. It's um, yeah, I suppose it's funny, isn't it? Because when we recorded that, we were only in August two thousand and twenty-one, and it was really only during sort of the summer of twenty twenty-one that live music was getting back on its feet in the UK. So it did feel like a, a bit of a release in that in that sense, especially doing um, three nights in a row, you know, at the Vortex. Like it's a very well loved club in London. Um, so it feels it really felt felt like playing at home it always kind of does especially when it's when it's full um so yeah it was really cool so let's move that needle back a little bit to the beginning of of living through this pandemic as Mm. an artist the jazz community was ravaged so to speak how did you survive it and how has it changed the way that your perspective is now of, of you know doing what you do as a musician so really good. It's a good question. And it's a broad question, you know, because that, that question of survival is different for different people. I guess I, I had it pretty lucky because it was just me and my wife and I was able to practice the saxophone while she <laughs> worked remotely. Um, and I kind of did sort of everything, everything else. And I was really getting into, um, you know, I was going in on cooking three meals properly a day. Like I was cooking a full breakfast every, every day and like really, uh, you know, taking care of business in that respect I think Um, and then yeah I could practice a lot and I suppose I was lucky as well because I it just sort of started making me think a little bit bigger about projects and how ambitious I could be like before I did this live record at the Vortex the year yeah no no sorry when I said when I said that we recorded in 2021 I obviously don't mean that I mean we recorded in 2022 because the year before the Vortex I did a studio record which was based on the same principle which was three groups Um, I recorded them over three days got three groups in the studio one group on each day Um, and then was you know thinking about where you go next with that and some of my favorite records are live records and I think it just felt like a natural a natural progression so I think the lockdown allowed me to do that you know it allowed me to to think a little bit bigger and to write more music you know like if you if you want to record three bands then you kind of have to almost write three albums worth of music you know um so I kind of had the time and space to do that so what are you ultimately hoping the listener gets from this experience um multiple things I think if you don't know the London jazz scene uh I think it's I think it's a really good reflection of like many different aspects of musicianship within within the scene because I think we're we're lucky in the sense that the London jazz scene at the moment is pretty well known internationally um, and there's you know there's really incredible people Shabaka Hutchins comes to mind who are really at the forefront of that um, but what I 
particularly sort of feel proud of about my home scene is that there's real depth as well um, and breadth underneath that. There's so many different musicians working on different things. Um, you know, I don't think Rob Luft and Mark Kavuma had played together before, for example. So I was kind of finding those um, new pairings of people that were perhaps working in slightly different parts of the scene before. So that was super satisfying. Um, and I guess the other thing that I'd sort of want people to have in mind is that we, all of us only played that music for the first time on the day of the recording. You know, I, I wrote it and I sent it to the musicians in advance, but kind of part of that, uh, like live concept was we get into the, uh, the vortex at 10 a.m. on the day. We drink a load of coffee, we rehearse the music, and then we record it in front of an audience in the evening. I was trying to keep it feeling quite fresh and spontaneous in that respect. You know, it's so good for me. I interviewed so many musicians over 2020, and Rob was one of the first interviews after the pandemic began. He had a major label release, and he was just bummed. He was like, you know, we had all these plans and all this stuff. So the fact that you brought his name up and he's on this and we're back, mm. it just feels, I feel so relieved and good for you guys because you bring so much good to people. And the fact that, you know, I mean, teams in America were coming back and they were playing in front of stadiums, but God forbid you get a jazz horn on the stage <laughs> and start spreading, right? So it, to see you guys back and to see that you incubated all these wondrous ideas that have come to fruition and really good sound waves is so good to see. And Rob's one of those cats. He, he just has a really good heart and it was good to, it's good to see that he's out there doing it. Yeah, for sure. I love his, I'd never really played with him that much, you know, before I just had really admired his musicianship on his own records, but also, you know, as a band leader, I was thinking he, he brings something so sort of distinctive to other people's records, you know, like the soundscapes that he creates on the guitar are, uh, are quite unique to him, I think. And then he's got this particular sort of soloing style that no one else really has. Um, yeah, his, his playing just really appeals to me in general. So I was kind of looking forward to, I was looking forward to hearing what he'd do. I did write all the music with all the specific musicians in mind as well. So on the day itself of recording, it was really satisfying to then hear them sort of lean into the things I'd written for them. Yeah. So you you have evolved into a very prolific musician and uh, and I'm and I'm curious how did this begin for you? How take me to the beginning of your life where you were born and raised and how these seeds grew into you today. Oh, okay. Um another great and broad question. Um I got really lucky I guess with my first saxophone teacher because I actually played the violin before I played saxophone. Um but I'm sure you know the feeling of just when you know you know, even I was as a child, I just knew that I didn't really have aptitude for it. I, I got all right at it because I played it for quite a long time. Um, I also sang a little bit as well uh, in the choir before my voice broke, which was, was fun. And I think <laughs> leads me to playing towards the top, uh, the, the higher register on the, on, on the tenor and enjoying that. Um, yeah, so I, I had a really good first sax teacher called Katie Brown, um, alto player who kind of had me on lots of Charlie Parker and Phil Woods and uh, Cannibal Adderley, and I was kind of transcribing those sorts of people. So I feel like through her, I got a really good grounding in, in the tradition, and I was really lucky to have that. Um, and then, yeah, I guess it just, I guess it went from, went from there. I, I went to uh, university and did an undergraduate degree in English, um, which was cool, but, uh, well, <laughs> not cool, but I really enjoyed it and it was super interesting, but I kind of knew that at the other end of it, I, I wanted to come out and get back to London and be part of the scene and playing the sax. And I was playing tenor by then as well. Um, 
and I think I didn't necessarily naturally lean in towards composing you know I just think as a horn player there's so many horn players on the scene and one of the ways that you can differentiate yourself and um, present a slightly more consolidated creative voice maybe is, is to write your own music and get that out there and then that's a that's a way of maybe people hear that and they're like hmm that's interesting maybe I'd like that voice on my own music. So, you know, the one thing that's seminal in our development, whether you're a musician or you're a listener, is that first time you see a band on stage and it blows you away. What was that moment for you where you were like, I have to have more of this in my life or I want to be on that stage one day? Mm, that's such a good question. I think it's uh, it's got to be one of the many Joshua Redmond gigs I saw at the Barbican because I kind of my first two favorite players were him and Coleman Hawkins, which is strange, right? Because I was playing alto at the time, but there, there was tenor players that I was into. Yeah. Um, and I can't remember, I think like way back in the day, I, I was lucky enough that I saw that first iteration of the Redmond Quartet. Um, and I imagine it was with McBride and um, Brad Meldow and Brian Blade. Um, but that's like just on the fringes of my memory because I was a little bit young. But I do remember seeing him particularly and, and just and, and sort of seeing the connection that he instantly had with the audience, um, which is partially due like through his kind of storytelling approach on the mic and the way he writes tunes, but partly just the immediacy of the saxophone sound. And I thought, mm, I would really like to develop something of that. Um, yeah, so that was probably it. I mean, there's been there's been standout gigs over the over the last couple of decades. I saw Herbie Hancock play at the Istanbul Jazz Festival when I was just there on holiday way back in the day, and that was another moment where I was like, man, this would be a, an amazing thing to do with my life. Yeah, absolutely. So, of all of these adventures you've been on as a musician and everything that you do every day. What is it that you look forward to the most? What is it that captivates you the most about being a professional musician? It, to be honest, the honest answer is playing other people's music. And I don't say that because I don't enjoy playing my own music. I do. And I get a lot out of, uh, as I say, bringing music that I've written for like really specific people and then hearing them do it. That's really cool. But the main thing that I enjoy and that I feel challenged by is when someone has sort of identified you as the person that can help them get towards the as yet undefined thing that they're trying to achieve. Um, and I really like the responsibility of that and it feels collegiate and supportive. Um, and I think you just have to think, what can I best add to the music? How can I best help them realize what they're trying to go for? So yeah, definitely it's side musician work that I find the most, um, that th th is what gets me up in the morning kind of thing. You know, it, it, as an American, I look at the British scene, whether it's jazz or pop or rock, and we always copy you. You're the ones that always trendset, you know, whether it's Oasis or it's Bowie or it's you or it's Rob. I mean, and I mean that sincerely. Like when I look at my catalog of music, there's something about the British way of delivering music. What is that? What do you think that is from your summation? That's um, a hard question to answer. I guess that there's a there's a sort of um, I don't know that I I feel like there's a sort of directness and a kind of honesty that you get from British musicians sometimes, but I think that you get that in other places as well. Like thinking about the centre of gravity for jazz, sort of historically, a, a lot of the time in in Britain parts of the British scene have been taking their cue directly from sort of what's been going on in jazz, black American music, because people view that as the source. And now it's, it's changing a little bit and like different diasporas, I guess, have 
different takes on what jazz is to them. And that's, that's really cool. So I definitely think there's sort of um, cross-cultural exchange going on. I noticed from spending time in America that there's a, there's a real uh, directness and intensity um, to when people are playing, playing jazz there that sometimes um, I miss a little bit when I'm back over the other side of the pond, but that's a huge generalization. And there's people playing incredibly fierce and intense music over here as well. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know what it is that's 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 unique that's unique to us. But I think there's a sort of uh, there's an honesty there, and there's a there's a slight sense of well, here it is, take it or leave it. You know, this this is what we do. If you like it, you do, and if you don't, well, fair enough. You know, there's other stuff. Yeah. So, as somebody that obviously is a practitioner and loves the craft, the idiom of jazz, why do you love jazz? <laughs> I think it's I. <laughs> I spent time in America in 2014 um, and uh, had a month in New York and then a friend and I did a big road trip that kind of culminated in New Orleans and then we came back up through Alabama and Georgia. But on the way down, we were um, basically tracing the Coltrane, you know, and we were finding the places where his grandparents grew up and where Coltrane came from in High Point and stuff like that. And then we went further south went through North Carolina and Mississippi and stuff. And just to see, um, I don't know how important uh, historical elements of the music are to people there. Um, I think that you sort of have an obligation, perhaps especially as a white musician from Europe to learn that history. Um, and then I think once you've got, and for me, it's a very basic sense of that history, but once you've got that sense, it kind of, it pulls you in and you know you're engaged in something that's really uh meaningful and important and you just kind of want to be able to contribute to it in some sort of small way um you know so i guess that's kind of what keeps me coming back so when i was approached for this interview the email said something along the lines of what would be your dream band and all of these fireworks mm. went off in my brain thinking about it and the annals of jazz who could you orchestrate to come together to have this moment that just would be unbelievable what would that be for you if you could orchestrate all of these jazz souls on stage and you could see it what would that be for you wow <laughs> i wish i thought of a better answer in advance uh, to this question but I guess I don't know there's something there's something about the Blakey bands that really uh, kind of holds a power for me I suppose and, and in a sense they were kind of like they weren't dream bands for him exactly but they were bands that had that sort of concept of like rotating musicians through quite quickly um, so I think something with Blakey on drums but then I don't know I'd, I would <laughs> I, I would have wanted to some sort of trio with Blakey, I guess. Trio with Elvin Jones. I think I'd build it from the drummer, certainly. Um and then I'd then I'd build it up from there. Maybe I'd have triple drums with like Blakey, Elvin Jones and I don't know, Philly Joe Jones or someone. So interesting you say that. I, I in, It took me a long time to hear this in an interview, but I was interviewing a legendary Latin percussionist, and he was explaining to me that when Miles picked his bands, he started with the drummer. And I had no idea. Mm. I just didn't know. I mean, I didn't have any preconceived notions, but the fact that that was the foundation, and then it just built up from there, and you just said that. So that's interesting. What, I mean, I, I also didn't know that about Miles, but that kind of makes sense, I think. Yeah, yeah. It, it me too, I mean, I didn't even question it. It's like, all right, that makes sense. 
That's that's how Miles rolls. Um, mm. So at the end of the day, everyone has a perception of you, family, friends, fans, but you run the whole show. What's your perception of you? Who do you think you are? I think at the moment, I'm really putting uh, sort of collaboration at the absolute heart of what I do. And I kind of want to think of myself as someone who sparks off these kind of slightly unusual or um, kind of encounters between musicians that you wouldn't necessarily have paired up together. Um, there's an element of which I want to document as well. Like I, I, I think the London scene is so strong. So I kind of want to make records that document that and show as I was talking about the sort of breadth and depth of musicianship that's going on. So, and then at the same time, you know, I, I recognize that I'm uh, an important part of that in that I'm writing the music and also playing it on the saxophone. But I, I kind of want to, um, I want to be a bit of a catalyst for these um, sort of musical situations that maybe wouldn't be replicated again, you know? And I think that's why the, the records are important because historically I would have always preferred playing uh, live to going into the studio. And I, I kind of think there's a lot to be said for waiting until you're really ready to go and record. And I'm 32, so I could, you know, I could leave it a few more years, but I just think um, capturing these these moments that I've, I'm kind of lucky enough to be able to make happen because I'm surrounded by all these incredible mu musicians. That's sort of where I'm, where I'm at as a, as a creative musician at the moment. So the latest album, Dream Band Live in London, where's the best place to get it, to catch you live, anything about your world, where do they go? The best place to get it would be through Bandcamp. Uh, so you can just search my name, Alex Hitchcock, and then Bandcamp, and it'll be on there. And you can choose between. There's some amazing um, limited edition triple vinyl. Because one of the things I forgot to say was I thought I was actually recording one album, but the musicians sort of threw down so much that I was like, well, <laughs> there's enough There's enough material here for three. So you can get a triple vinyl or a triple CD. In terms of playing live, um, I'm playing quite a lot in the uh, upcoming London Jazz Festival which is in November if you're on this side of the pond. Um, I'm bringing over some new friends from New York to tour in Europe in March. So that's going to go through the Netherlands and the UK, a bit of Sweden, a bit of Spain. Um, and I've also got some stuff, weirdly, for the time for me, which is under embargo in the contract that's coming up in the US uh, in the middle of next year as well. So uh, if, you keep a, if you keep an eye on my website or my social media, if you're over in the US, um, it would really be great to see people at those. Alex, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much. I love the music. I love your energy. Thanks for your story today, man. I appreciate it. Legend. Thank you so much, Joe. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players and minds in London, Kansas City, and spots all over the globe giving fans all that jazz. Thanks to Alex for his time, energy, and cool. If you want to hear more Neon Jazz interviews, you can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to us at YouTube, and for everything Neon Jazz, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.